Hi, and welcome to Stargaze, the Queer Astrology Archives podcast, where we examine the lives of important queer artists, activists, and thinkers through the lens of their astrological birth chart. My name is Ellie, and I'll be your host. In each episode, we will focus on one individual and overlay their natal chart on their biography to draw connections between their life experiences and astrological influences. Since this is the first episode, I'll give you a little background on my approach to astrology and some thoughts on why I'm making this podcast. I started studying astrology seriously in 2019 and have been deeply invested ever since. My studies have been a blend of Hellenistic and modern, and my primary teachers and influences are Chris Brennan, Kelly Surtees, Michael J. Morris, Kira Taburn, Chani Nicholas, and Demetra George. In terms of the technical stuff, I use whole sign houses, traditional planetary rulers, and the essential dignity scheme of the Hellenistic tradition, but I also use the outer planets and a psychological archetypal approach to astrology that's more reflective of modern astrological traditions. My practice is informed by my lived experience as a queer and trans person, as well as scholarly pursuits in literature, history, and gender sexuality and feminist studies. The idea for this podcast came about after a tutoring session with Michael J. Morris. I asked what I should do next, and they suggested that I take one or two charts and study them as closely as possible. They said to be sure to pick people that I really wanted to spend a lot of time with, and I came up with a list of like 20 people, and being a Libra rising with a Sag moon, I couldn't choose, and so the idea for this podcast was born. So this isn't exactly what Michael had in mind, but I do hope to use this podcast as a tool to develop my relationship with astrology, as well as a way to honor the legacies of the individuals we will be studying. I've been thinking a lot about the why behind this podcast, and I think that creating my own archive and my own queer lineage has been incredibly important to me in developing my sense of self and figuring out my place in the world. And because queer histories are so often erased, I spent so long knowing that there was more than, you know, Stonewall, HIV, and Queer Eye in terms of queer art and activism, but not really knowing how or where to find it. And it's only in the last like five years or so that I figured out where to find what I'm looking for. And that process of discovery and relationship to queer art and artists has had a profound impact on who I am. I still feel like I'm constantly discovering queer art from the archives and feeling like, wow, I can't believe I didn't know about this. And at the same time, astrology has been a critically important tool for understanding my life and figuring out my place in the world. Studying the cycles of time has allowed me to connect to the past and be more present in my own experience. These have been ways that I've located myself and rooted into who I am and where I come from. So it only made sense to me to build out a queer archive through the lens of astrology. And I think especially in this current moment where transness is being criminalized it feels even more important to ground into that lineage and look back at history and see what activist tactics we were using, how we were existing and creating art and living through difficult times to hopefully learn some things that we can use today. So I'm hoping that we will all learn a little astrology, a little queer history, maybe discover some new art we didn't know existed. Yeah, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy exploring the queer universe with me.
just a couple notes. There is so much that can be said about the astrology of any one person and so many ways to interpret the symbols um, in someone's chart. And I don't intend for this podcast to be an exhaustive treatment by any means and welcome insights and disagreements on interpretations. And I'm also assuming that listeners have some basic understanding of astrology. Uh, I will try to walk through my interpretations as I go, but I may skip over um, definitions of basic astrological concepts. So let's get into it. I'm sitting here in this room and it's around dawn. It seems to be dusk. It seems to be there's no light. Just these traces of blue in the sky. And far over the, the edges of the tenements, and the, if I look down the street, this angle, it looks like something out of a Dechirica. There's these white clouds that are so faint, so gray. This strong moon. And across the street, For today's episode, we are going to take a deep dive into the chart of artist and activist David Wojnarowicz. Born on September 14, 1954 at 9.01 a.m. in Red Bank, New Jersey, and I'll put a link to his chart in the show notes. David Wojnarowicz was a multimedia artist, painter, photographer, writer, and HIV and AIDS activist who lived and worked in the East Village art scene of New York until his death from AIDS-related complications on July 22, 1992. His early life was tumultuous. His father was physically abusive, and after his parents divorced in 1956, his father abducted him and his siblings to the Midwest. By 1965, Wojnarowicz was back to living with his mother in New York. He attended the High School of Music and Art, um, which is now called LaGuardia High School, intermittently, but by 1971, at age 17, he was living on the streets full-time and doing sex work. Throughout the 70s, he was based in New York, but traveled to San Francisco, the Southwest, and France. Um, David's early artistry included music with his band, uh, Three Teens Kill Four, whose song Desire we just heard a little bit of. He did a series of photographs of himself with a huge uh, cutout poster face of the poet um, Arthur Rimbaud around New York. He made Super 8 films, and he also did a lot of graffiti and stencil art, notably in the abandoned Christopher Street Piers, which was also a regular cruising site for gay men. His work was shown in various galleries in Manhattan, and his name became more widely known after his work was included in the 1985 Whitney Biennial, The Graffiti Show. Uh, David collaborated with many artists, including the Golden. He wrote essays um, focused on the lives of people in his community. Uh, and in 1987, Wojnarowicz's mentor and lover Peter Hujar died of AIDS, um, and it was around the same time that he learned that he had seroconverted. So from this point on, his art became more explicitly focused on HIV and AIDS activism, and it is 
this work that he is most remembered for today. As a political artist working on controversial topics, Buenarovich received frequent criticism. His work was often attacked as obscene. Um, in 1989, the National Endowment for the Arts revoked funding for a show that was organized by Nan Golden because of his essay, Postcards from America, X-Rays from Hell, um, which was included in the um, liner notes of the show. Much of David's work was visceral and angry, but it was important to him to capture the lives of people who others might prefer to look away from, including gay people, people with AIDS, homeless people, etc. David continued to work until he died of AIDS in 1992. Okay. I think what I'll do is go through the sun, moon, rising, and ruler of the ascendant. Um, and then the benefic of sect, which is the planet capable of doing the most good. Um, so Jupiter in a day chart and Venus in a night chart, as well as the malefic contrary uh, to sect, which is the planet capable uh, of causing the most problems, um, which is Mars in a day chart and Saturn in a night chart. Um, I'd love to eventually look at events and different timing techniques, but I think for today we'll mostly be doing character analysis and using David to try to understand how some of the astrological archetypes can play out. Um, and like I said, I can't possibly talk about all aspects of each of these planets, so I'm just kind of pulling um, what's most interesting or stands out the most to me. And of course, everything is connected, so some of the things we're talking about are coming up in a couple of different places in the chart, and we'll look at how those parts are connected. Um, and then just in terms of sources, a lot of the quotes I'm pulling are from The Weight of the Earth, the tape journals of David Wojnarowicz, but I'm also pulling from some internet articles and his biography by Cynthia Carr. I will include links to all of them in the show notes, as well as a copy of David's birth chart again, so that you can follow along. Um, a quick overview of David's chart. He was a Virgo sun, an Aries moon, and a Libra rising. Uh, Venus, the ruler of his ascendant, was in Scorpio with Saturn. He had Mercury in Libra, um, Mars in Capricorn, and Jupiter in Cancer. Okay. Let's talk about the sun. So David's son was in Virgo in his 12th house. And I really want to talk about the 12th house because with the 12th house, we get themes around suffering, isolation, enemies, self-undoing, all of the places and people that exist in the margins or outside of the public sphere, such as prisons, hospitals, and the streets. Um, and with David's son in the 12th, we can see all of these themes playing out in his personality, in his lived experiences, and through his art. Um, so as a teen, um, he didn't always have stable housing, and while in his adult life he did have more stable housing, he continued to focus on people who lived on the streets in his community in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Um, as well as other people who were in the margins, including gay people and people with HIV and AIDS. He seemed to see people that others might ignore, and his art often centered these people. Um, in an essay on queer shame, Margaret Morrison wrote, quote, he wanted to make honest art, art that derived from his uneasiness with the world. His goal was to embrace stigma and shame and to tell uncomfortable truths in his art. He wanted to aim a spotlight 
on the social ills that people did not want to look at. His first book, Sounds in the Distance, which was later republished as the Waterfront Journals, collected the experiences of marginalized people and turned them into monologues. His uneasiness with the world came from a real felt sense of alienation and intentional distancing from what he called the, quote, pre-invented world. And by that, he's referring to the concepts, social values, roles, and moral restrictions that are so ingrained in society that they seem to be innate, although they are actually created by those in power. His conception of the pre-invented world is probably one of the most crucial keys to understanding his artwork. It's almost like his aim is to unveil what's happening behind the scenes, which is another 12-house theme um, of the this pre-invented existence, which is very Wizard of Oz. Um, and by doing this, his work not only calls attention to the fabrication of the pre-invented world, but it also asked his audience to reorient themselves around the people whose lives were dismissed or erased by it. In the introduction to The Weight of the Earth, David Velasco writes of Wojnarowicz, quote, he seems so at home inside alienation. He gets his power from it. And... The sun represents the core, it's our will to live, and David's will to live or his power is coming from alienation. Um, David was an outsider, he was different from others, and he really valued the ways that he didn't fit in. Actually, he was highly critical of the people he saw as participating uncritically in the pre-invented world. The editors of the book also echo this sentiment. Um, they said, he spoke aloud, alone, hoping that by way of velocity and will, he could escape the sticky seat of the self and of pre-invented existence. And this second quote speaks to that alienation, but also to self-undoing. Um, it's not enough for David to escape the pre-invented world. He's also trying to escape himself. And we can also see his concern around enemies, which is another 12th house theme in the art world. Um, in the tape journals, he says, what I'm trying to say is the fact that people can do what they do, the work they do, or they can make the things they make, and they can make them with the intensity that they make them, or the feelings that they make them, or the emotion that they make them, or the reasons that they make them, or the intent and some asshole can come along and because he can't get fucked, start spreading a series of rumors or misinformation or bending the ear of collectors or people looking at the art saying it's shit. I don't know. The whole system's completely set up like that. I'm just thinking, here I am busting my gut to make these things, do these things that are part of my personal truth, and I put them out in front of this unknown group of people with all the intent of what I make to put it out there for judgment or put it out there for somebody to say this about it, or that about it, or to dismiss it. David's concerned about putting something of himself out into the world and it being poorly received because of someone's ill will towards him, as opposed to the merit of his work. He goes on. Suddenly, I got struck with a feeling that I wanted to start smashing things. Smashing all the art in the apartment. I had this vision of the amount of destruction I could do to this room, into all the things I've made. So we see this anxiety around enemies creating the desire to destroy his art, um, which is a real act of self-undoing. And so it's just a few quotes from David um, or others about him. We can see how the son's placement in the 12th house 
is deeply present in all aspects of his life. There is a profound sensitivity to the way the world works um, and to all the cogs in the machine and a desire to have nothing to do with it. David's focus on his own alienation and anxiety around enemies might make him come across as antisocial, um, but the reality was quite the opposite, if not uncomplicated. David was deeply enmeshed in the arts and queer community of the Lower East Side in the 80s. Um, he worked at Danceteria, which was a New York City nightclub where a lot of other artists worked at the time, including people like Keith Haring. And as I said earlier, he collaborated with many, many artists, um, most notably Peter Hujar and Nan Golden. On his friendships, an LA Review of Books article wrote, quote, his friendships sustained him in ways that his queer and anti-capitalist work could not. And of course, his artwork is deeply relational at its core. Um, it pulls people from the margins in and holds them close. And I think that what we're seeing here is the relationship between his 12th house, Virgo Sun, and his Libra Rising, which create this um, conflicted cravings for retreat and for connection. So the rising sign in astrology is related to the motivation for life, and David being a Libra Rising is motivated to connect and build relationships with other people. It's just that the people and places he's drawn to connect with are the most marginalized, these 12th house people. And I think we can also bring in the fact that Mercury, the sun in Virgo's ruler, is in Libra, further connecting his motivation for life and his core purpose. Mercury, as the host of the sun, provides it with relational communication skills. On top of that, we can bring in the fact that the sun rules the sign of Leo, which is on the cusp of David's 11th house of friends, groups, and alliances. So we have several signifiers of his purpose and motivation being relational. I want to take a closer look at another interesting aspect of David's liberalizing, which is about justice and fairness. Libra's symbol is the scales, and David's work often addresses how the systems and structures in our society, our pre-invented existence, perpetuate injustice. A lot of David's later work in response to the AIDS epidemic highlights this in particular. For example, he famously wore a leather jacket emblazoned with the message, If I die of AIDS, forget burial. Just drop my body on the steps of the FDA. This was a sentiment he repeated over and over. In his memoir, Close to the Knives, he wrote, I imagine what it would be like if friends had a demonstration each time a lover or a friend or a stranger died of AIDS. I imagine what it would be like if each time a lover, friend, or stranger died of this disease, their friends, lovers, or neighbors would take the dead body and drive with it in a car 100 miles an hour to Washington, D.C., and blast through the gates of the White House and come to a screeching halt before the entrance and dump their lifeless form on the front steps. These statements were um, powerful critiques of the FDA and um, the government's failure to prioritize treatments for HIV and AIDS and um, to make those treatments accessible to the people who needed them most. 
and his words actually inspired AIDS activists to hold a political funeral in 1992, where they scattered the ashes of friends and loved ones lost to AIDS on the White House lawn. I'll give some more examples when we get to Jupiter in a minute, but his work is motivated by an awareness and an anger at how unjust it is that he and his community are not getting the care that they need and deserve. Okay, let's take a look at Venus now. If we bring Venus into the picture, which is the ruler of Libra and therefore his ascendant ruler, we can gain some further insight. In Hellenistic astrology, the ascendant is most closely associated with the native, um, while other houses might stand in for other people in the native's life. And so the ruler of the ascendant becomes one of the most important planets for describing the native and their life's focus. The ascendant ruler is often described as the driver of the person's life, steering them towards their purpose. And Venus is the planet of love and beauty and pleasure and connection. So his life is being steered towards those ideals. David's Venus is in Scorpio, um, conjunct Saturn within a degree in the second house. And Venus is in its detriment in Scorpio, which is to say that it is not at home. And as the planet of love and beauty and connection, Venus being in its detriment could indicate something like an attraction to things that are not considered conventionally attractive or beautiful. Um, in his own words, he says, quote, I like ugly people, or people with some sense of derangement, and that's something I've always felt. Not necessarily deranged, but someone who's off in some way. Someone who's interesting, who has character, through lack of beauty or whatever. Someone who is beautiful in a way that's not classically beautiful. This is just like such a perfect quote. Um, so he's motivated by that uh, Libran, Venusian desire to connect. But because Venus is in Scorpio, he's drawn not to classical beauty, but to a more non-conventional beauty. And if we return to his 12th house son, where does he find that non-conventional beauty? In the people and places who are not centered. So we see all of these different pieces kind of coming together. Okay, let's talk about Jupiter, because Jupiter is really well placed in David's chart. So since David was born during the day, um, Jupiter is the benefic of sect, or the planet that is most capable of doing good in his chart. And Jupiter signifies growth and abundance and optimism, um, in addition to religion and law. And Jupiter is in the angular 10th house, which is all about career and public image. Um, it is conjunct the midheaven within two degrees. Um, it's in its own bounds in Cancer, which is the sign of exaltation. The ruler of Cancer, the moon, is in Aries, applying to a square with Jupiter. So Jupiter is able to receive the support of its domiciled ruler. All of these factors together mean that Jupiter is able to manifest some of its most positive qualities in David's life, in particular in the sector of his career. And of course, we can see Jupiter's role playing out just in that David is one of the most famous artists of his cohort. Jupiter, as the benefic of sect in his 10th house, um, just affirms his career and his public standing. His 
legacy and his art have lived on beyond his life. Famously, his photograph, untitled Falling Buffaloes, was used as the cover for the U2 song One. Um, but even when he was alive, his work was featured in the Whitney Biennial, and he was well known in the art community, um, and often actually singled out, although not necessarily in a positive way, on a very public stage. A more negative example of this singling out came in April of 1990. So right-wing evangelist Donald Wildman distributed thousands of pamphlets to Congress and media outlets that attacked Wojnarowicz's use of homoerotic imagery and the $15,000 National Endowment of the Arts grant that supported a retrospective of his work. So there's something really interesting happening with Jupiter here. Um, Jupiter signifies religion and the law, and if we take the previous example of his work being demonized, it was done by an evangelist, so we get the religious leader, and Wildman sent the works to Congress members, so there we get the justice and legal leaders. And if he was targeted by Jupiterian figures, he certainly matched them um, with his artwork. There was a righteousness to it, and he was motivated by a real sense of justice and anger around injustice, especially in regard to government inaction and Christian homophobia in response to HIV. Um, his work sometimes went so far as to specifically target religious and political leaders. One of his more famous written works is the Seven Deadly Sins Fact Sheet from 1989 where he calls out specific leaders and the ways their actions or inactions have caused serious harm to HIV-positive people. Included um, on that list of seven are the former New York City Mayor Ed Koch and Cardinal John O'Connor. Another famous piece features a photograph of young David surrounded by text that reads, quote, one day this kid will do something that causes men who wear the uniforms of priests and rabbis, men who inhabit certain stone buildings, to call for his death. One day politicians will enact legislation against this kid. So we begin to see how Jupiter is playing a dual role here. First, it is creating the conditions for Wenerovich to become a famous artist, and second, it makes religious and political leaders a central focus in his art and coincidentally also makes him a central figure in uh, right-wing obscenity fear-mongering. So I want to circle back and pick up David's moon in Aries and his Mars, um, because I think it will really flesh out our understanding of David. So with the moon, um, the moon is how we get our physical and emotional needs met, it's how we live out our purpose, which is the sun, in the day-to-day. -day. And David's moon is in Aries in the seventh house. So his purpose <clears throat> gets lived out through impulsive actions, Aries, in David's one-on-one -on -one relationships in the seventh house. So he gives a handful of really perfect examples of this. In one moment, he's talking about a boy that he's seeing, and he says... I wasn't even going to think about it beforehand. I was just going to go there and say whatever was in my head. So really impulsive, act first, think second. 
I can't remember which astrologer it was um, who said ready, fire, aim. But yeah, very Aries. Or at another moment, he says, quote, One guy had been cruising me at the bar. I ended up getting in some real great discussions with him and arguments and everything else. All things dealing with theories of art, the practice of art, and reasons for making things. I didn't agree with him on just about anything. I was argumentative, but it was good, and it felt really healthy. So with that, like, he's not just having fun here, but he's getting some need met from this kind of argumentative interaction. I do think that the Aries moon in the seventh also indicates some of the challenges that he had in relationships with respect to anger. He was known for his rage, and we've kind of been dancing around that a little bit in this episode, but literally every source refers to his rage. Um, it's almost impossible to read anything about him and not have him described as angry. His biographer, Cynthia Carr, reported that Wojnarowicz was known to his friends in the East Village as someone who, quote, had a short temper, um, sorry, had a short fuse, a bad temper. And I think we can look to Mars, the planet that rules David's moon, to get some understanding as to why he was so angry. So Mars is the malefic that is contrary to the sect, um, which means that it is the most challenging planet in his chart. Um, and Mars is in Capricorn, uh, the place of his exaltation. So we have this really powerful Mars, and it's in the fourth house of home, family, and parents. So we would expect to see challenges in those areas of life. And as we talked about earlier, his housing was unstable for most of his life, but also his father was abusive. And so we can see his father really like, actually taking on the energy of Mars um, and being a Martian figure in his life. And Cynthia Carr actually draws these connections between his anger and his home life, writing that his anger was, quote, very likely an effect of the early traumas he suffered from his father's frequent beatings, his parents' abandonments of him, and his brother and sister and his parents' blatant disregard for the effects on their children of the constant abrupt disruptions in their lives. Because he did not have much control of his early life, Wojnarowicz probably felt an urgent need to communicate, to make some sense of his life, to use any language he could muster, and the negative effects, rage and shame, pressuring him from his years of mistreatment, were indeed powerful motivators of his work. So we can see that Mars, as the malefic contrary to sect, is causing serious problems in David's childhood, which had massive ripple effects that lasted his whole life um, and manifested in his one-on-one -on -one relationships later in life. And I think, as Carr says, that anger does also really come through in his work, which I think is the result of the connection between Mars um, ruling his moon in Aries in the 7th which is in turn ruling his 10th house of career. And then, of course, there's this opposition between Mars in the 4th and Jupiter in the 10th. It's a little bit of a wide opposition, but I think it's pretty loud in his chart. 
I want to play just a little bit of David speaking because I think that there's, it's just a very different experience to hear the anger coming through in his voice. Um, and this is David reading an excerpt from an essay called Do Not Doubt the Dangerousness of the 12-Inch Politician, which you can find in Close to the Knives. And I wake up every morning this killing machine called America, and I'm carrying this rage like a blood-filled egg. And there's a thin line between the inside and the outside, a thin line between thought and action, and that line is simply made up of blood and muscle and bone. And I'm waking up more and more from daydreams that tip an Amazonian blow darts and infected blood and spitting them at the exposed neckline of certain politicians or government health care officials, or those thinly disguised walking swastikas that wear religious garments over their murderous intentions, or those rabid strangers praying against AIDS clinics in the nightly news suburbs. There's a thin line, a very thin line between the inside and the outside, and I've been looking all my life at the signs surrounding us in the media on people's lips. The religious types outside St. Patrick's Cathedral shouting to men and women the gay parade. You won't be here next year. You'll get AIDS and die, haha. And there is the USA where it's possible to murder a man and when brought to trial only has to say that the victim was a queer. They try to touch you and the courts will set you free. And an anti-violence bill, uh, the difficulties that a bunch of Republican senators have in Albany with supporting an anti-violence bill that includes sexual orientation as a category of crime victims. There's a thin line, a very thin line, and as each T-cell disappears from my body, it's replaced by 10 pounds of pressure, 10 pounds of rage, 10 pounds of pressure, 10 pounds of rage, and I focus that rage into non-violent resistance, but the focus is starting to slip. The focus is starting to slip. My hands are beginning to move independent of self-restraint, and the egg is starting to crack. America, America, America seems to understand and accept murder as a self-defense against those who would murder other people, and it's been murder on a daily basis for eight, nine, ten, eleven, count them, ten long years. And we're expected to quietly and politely pay taxes to support this public and social murder. And we're expected to quietly and politely make house to this windstorm murder. But I'd say there's certain politicians that have better increase the security forces. And there's religious leaders and healthcare officials that have better get bigger fucking dogs and higher fucking fences and more complex security alarms to their homes. And queer bashers better start doing their work from inside howitzer tanks because the thin line between the inside and the outside is beginning to erode. And at the moment, at the moment of a 37-foot-tall, 1,172-pound man inside this six-foot body, and all I can feel is the pressure. All I can feel is the pressure and the need for release. Okay. We have covered a lot of ground here, and I think it's really incredible to see how the planets are shaping David's experience of the world. I want to just return to David's Venus one more time, because it is also ruled by this powerful Mars. In traditional astrology, Mars rules the sign of Scorpio. So the anger that Mars provides to Venus in this context absolutely influences how his life's direction is steered by Venus. But I think that the ultimate motivation was still beauty. 
in a conversation with the artist Zoe Leonard, who took pictures of clouds. He said, Zoe, these are so beautiful. And that's what we're fighting for. We're being angry and complaining because we have to. But where we want to go is back to beauty. If you let go of that, we don't have anywhere to go. And I think this sentiment really captures something core to David that came up consistently in every aspect of his chart. He was full of anger and discontent, but only because he knew things could be different. He believed that another world was possible and he wasn't going to settle for less. Okay, that's all I have. Thank you so much for listening. This is a bit of a pilot episode, so if you have thoughts, uh, feedback, or someone you would like me to do an episode on, you can email me at lerhiggins at gmail.com. That is E-L-L-Y-R-H-I-G-G-I-N-S at gmail.com. You can also find me on social media on Instagram. It's Ellie Higgins Astro. That's my name, plus A-S-T-R-O. And then on Twitter, it's E-H Astrology. And special shout out to Bobby for um, helping to write and produce the intro music as well as production on the episode. Okay, thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Bye.